Welcome to What Matters to Me and Why, a program that we've been running for many years through the Office for Religious Life. My name is Jane Shaw, and I'm the Dean for Religious Life. And it's a great pleasure to welcome you, and especially to welcome our guest and speaker today, Alex Nemiroff. The size of the crowd and the enthusiasm of the crowd shows that he is indeed one of the most well-known professors on campus. I'll give you his official title, which is the Carl Amaral in Toma Provostial, Provostial Professor of the Humanities and Arts here at Stanford. He's also at the moment Chair of the Art and Art History Department. Alex was educated as an undergraduate at the University of Vermont and as a graduate student at Yale. He began his teaching career at Stanford. He was then wooed to Yale, and happily we wooed him back in 2012. So he's been back at Stanford for the last five years. He's the author of many books, Wartime Kiss, Visions of the Moment in the 1940s, Acting in the Night, Macbeth and the Places of the Civil War, Icons of Grief on Val Newton's Homefront Pictures, The Body of Raphael Peel, Frederick Remington and Turn of the Century America, and most recently Soul Maker, The Times of Lewis Hine. He has curated a number of exhibitions and soul authored their catalogues. He's also written a long and interesting essay on his father, the poet Harald Nemiroff, and aunt, the photographer Diane Arbus, which was published recently as Silent Dialogues. And he has a monograph on the photographer Ralph Eugene Meatyard coming out this year. This spring, he has been, or is still, maybe has been delivering. Has been. Has been. He's back from Washington, D.C., where he's been delivering the 66th annual Andrew Mellon Lectures in the Fine Arts at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., a great honor to be invited to do that. Uh, and they were on the topic of the forest, America in the 1830s. So that summary will tell you that his interests are wide ranging. They are primarily American. They are primarily about painting and photography. But Alex is always someone who has taken literature into account as well in the way he's thought about the visual arts. And so I'm going to stop introducing him now and just ask him the very first question which is, Alex, can you give us a couple of things that matter to you and why? Yes. Or three, if you like. Um, I, I, think, I think teaching matters to me because, um, well, in, in my way of conceiving it, that there, there is no um, class that is unimportant, that is to say no class period where, in a way, uh, you know, I mean, in every class, everything is on the line for me. So I take it almost absurdly personally uh, in that way. And that's a, it, that makes it very humbling because it's not really achievable to do that. But one sets that as one's goal. And it's a, it makes my weeks uh, and months and years meaningful, too, to invest a teaching period, whether it's a seminar or a lecture, with that kind of importance. And I suppose the importance beneath the importance, uh, what matters to me beyond the personal is the idea that any one student might be transfigured by what's going on here, or that is to say, changed in the old fashioned way. And, uh, you know, excellence is a word that I dislike. I think it, it suggests a kind of admin speak about what professors and students are supposed to uh, be about and 
its very blandness as a catch-all term should make us have our guards up. So I mean something more particular and, if you like, eccentric, more personal than uh, the, a so-called commitment to excellence, which I think is a, a term we can all hide behind and kind of wave our hand at. But as anyone who's been in a successful teaching experience knows, uh, as a student or a teacher, you know that it's something unrepeatable that has happened there that is um, yet um, so vivid that uh, you know you walk out of there differently than you were when you walked in. So that's that's one thing that matters to me. You, did you ask for two? Or well, I can, we can follow up a little bit about teaching if yeah, you like. Please, yeah. um, because uh, I too am um, interested in the word excellent. Yeah. Because partly because it gets used by admin speak, but also because it doesn't get used in other contexts. And interesting, I just got asked to go and give a. This is not about me, by the way. Sorry, <laughs> but I did go ask to go and give a talk about the theology of excellence. I thought that's an interesting concept. Uh -huh. So I've been thinking about it. So, if you don't like the word excellent, have you got a better word? Um, I I haven't really thought of a a word that would describe what it is I'm talking about. I suppose um, passion which I suppose is its own, is a word that it too has been captured and can mean a number of bland things. But um, I suppose uh, that's a better word for what I have in mind. And what I've said before, and some of you in this room have heard me say it before, is that I feel in a classroom there are only three parties that I feel responsible to. One is uh, myself, am I doing justice to what I feel about, say, the artist in question? A second would be the artist. Uh, do I feel that the artist would be maybe not pleased, but would note that there's something serious happening, that their work is being respected, honored? And the third would be my audience. Do I feel not only that it's I'm making it as best I can worth their time to be in this room, but also, you know, am I allowing for the possibility of something beyond just uh, me as a deliverer of information and them as recipients of information to, to happen? And I think the two further thoughts I would add on that is there are, of course, two classical formats for this kind of teaching. One is the seminar, in which, which has been much harder for me to learn how to master that is to allow for all kinds of conversation and to combine what is said and push, push it forward. Uh, you might think that's a readier way for us to share in the possibility of transfiguration, to use a religious word that I've spoken about. But I, I think the, the concept of the lecture, I hope, is not lost. And I feel very... Um, invested in the lecture where it's only one person who's talking, me, and yet somehow it's everyone who is involved, if it works well, where the professor is the medium for, the art, for, for, for thoughts that are not his own really, but his own thoughts are necessary as the catalyst to set in motion the individual consciousness of each person in the room. Um, so I think it's fascinating the way 
uh, a, a lecturer, like a charismatic lecturer, can be misconstrued as um, creating or desiring a, a kind of cult of personality, though I've never felt that particularly here. Like, that's never felt to me like an admonishment I receive. Where, but what I can report from within the engine house of my own mind is that it, it always feels to me exactly the opposite of it being about the professor, that I am, again, like the, I'm the person who allows something to happen, uh, just in the way that a, a painter or a poet might make something available to the rest of us that could only happen through the singular consciousness of that one oracular speaker or painter, but which finally is not about them. Yep. So, so there's an art, I think there's an art to lecturing, actually. Yes. Which I'm not sure can be taught, but one can pick it up in a variety of ways. Well, I've given so many terrible lectures over the years that I think I've learned, I, it can be taught, because okay. I think um, you learn from your mistakes. Sure. And especially when I was much younger, you know, you could just see when people would start to zone out. And, you know, I learned, for example, transitions, very important. I learned that um, actually saying what you're going to talk about at the start is a good idea, as opposed to, which I think is a common rookie mistake, kind of assuming there will be some mysterious unfolding, but you quickly realize, well, if no one can really tell what you're talking about, uh, they're not going to really bother with whatever mystery is unfolding. So uh, I think it can be taught in that way. And I know with my graduate students, I think we do spend time on like how to communicate. How to communicate is one thing, but actually I think the mystery of the perfect lecture is a different thing, actually, but yes. you can disagree. Well, that may be so, but I would say it is teachable to the extent that uh, a, a lecturer is, is aware of what matters most to them in yeah. doing what they do. And that's part of it is to uh, not treat yourself as a functionary or as a, you know, just a kind of um, deliverer of stuff. Um, and then also to learn the techniques of how to um, convey that which is utterly personal to you. So I know it's melodramatic, but I think that, uh, you know, a few years ago, there was something called The Last Lecture, um, which came out of a very good and noble place where this professor, I believe, at Carnegie Mellon was dying, and he made it his point then to, as it were, go beyond what he would simply teach his specialty and actually speak about what he knows about life. And I think it was then, then became something of a thing where people who weren't dying would nonetheless also give lectures where they were going to get real. And I've, I always thought that was not the origin, but the latter uh, versions of this to be kind of strange, stupid even, because uh, it, it's sort of saying, well, I really don't usually put it all out there, you know, but okay, there's this occasion, so I'm going to like really tell you what I think on this occasion, but not usually. And I, I've, in my 
naive way, I find that odd. And notice that it's not because I feel that I'm, an, you know, I'm on a mission to convert Stanford undergraduates uh, to, you know, I mean, one has to have a sense of purpose. I mean, to take undergraduate education seriously, for example, but it's not a missionary zeal because one, frankly, becomes, well, teaching is such a humbling profession. And on the best of days, even the most casual glance around the room will tell you that you're no, um, you're no prophet. <laughs> so you, you do this for the students and with a belief that something good might happen. And you honor your best instincts and your better angels in believing always in the classroom and in oneself as a, these are conditions of possibility rather than defeat or cynicism which is, or irony, which are worse than defeat and which are default positions available abundantly to us in every aspect of our lives now, whereas hope is much more difficult to actually just honor and own. Uh, but it, it's also about oneself and living, living a, a proper life within one's failings and limitations. And I simply mean teaching, among other things, gives me a sense of purpose and structure and, and if you like, a kind of religious devotion in the absence of actual prayer. It, it, it seems metaphysical for me, or it is metaphysical. I could ask you lots of questions about that, but let's, um, in fact, including what is a platonic ideal of the lecture, but we'll, we won't go there. We will, um, let's tell us about the other things that matter to you and give you purpose. Well, I always think that, um, you know, I'm a late bloomer, and uh, I'm 53 now, and I think if you were to look at me in my 30s, I would have been someone who is only intermittently in contact with all the things that I sit here and can expound about now. And uh, what I always say to a question like that is um, three things happened to me between then and now. One, having kids. Uh, so my little daughters who are now not so little, but they're, you know, you just see how precious life is. So you think, um, correspondingly, like, well, I teach about art. I, I know I care about it, but I probably haven't owned or avowed that caringness, that belief, that faith as much as I could or should. Two would be, um, I think you mentioned my father and my aunt, so both of them were very famous um, artists, a poet and a photographer, and when they were alive, I couldn't, as it were, look them in the face. I think I just wasn't ready to do that artistically. My father died when I was 27. He died of cancer. My aunt killed herself when I was eight. And with neither of them did I really have any kind of substantive discussion about being an artist. But posthumously, uh, I have. And I think I now can really converse with them pretty freely, but more precisely, understand through them what an absolute 
dedication to art is. And what I have imbibed from them is that that dedication consists of pursuing a work of art, whether it's a poem or a photograph, without fear, without apology, without explanation, and also in the full faith that in the sort of endless swirl of chaos or randomness that is the world, the work of art can be something that is a moment of clarity, like a Heideggerian clearing, or as my father would say, and did say in a beautiful poem of his, you know, the, the work of art strives not to be like so, some kind of depressing monument you see in a town square that has its a kind of fossilized eternity, not that kind of permanence, but to be, he says, like a, a finger held up in, you know, just to the wind, just like this. It's a kind of momentary um, way of pausing this um, chaos around us and... And, and to be, he says, as casual as um, a child skipping stones, which I, I think I've, always, I've also related to as well, because, you know, there's this sense for academics and for artists of um, the, the preciousness of the calling, like it has to be just so. I always think of the scene in the movie Amadeus where, where Salieri, is, Salieri is showing ha as having been inspired and he for coming up with a certain note and he he thanks the crucifix there on his piano and we're to understand right then and there that his mediocrity is completely the same as his precious sense of his own artistic ability whereas a child skipping rocks is like hey I just brought it off you know it's like the the, 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 the running back in the football game who's asked afterwards, like, how did you score that touchdown? Well, I have no idea. I just did it. You know, the same, you know, um, with an artist. And I think my, my father and my aunt, in that way and in other ways, really lived an artistic life, which I think I've really benefited from though iron, ironically or not ironically, one condition of the benefit is not having them around, right? And then the third thing I think would just be a sense of the past in some sort of vivid, super-fueled sense, which always as a little boy I think I had, and I know, you know, in my little elementary school, the, the mean boys would get on my case because I actually like going to the art museum uh, and as one of them who used to beat me up a lot said, uh, you have an old soul. Uh, so you can tell that the playground taunts were really rough back in those days. <laughs> but, um, so yes, I always had it, but I think much later, you know, I just sort of realized the 1940s just completely this, for not surprising reasons, uh, it, for anyone who wants to just think about that decade for a second, are this kind of emotional center of gravity for me. So when I walk into a classroom, I don't need to be talking about the 1940s to feel that I have probably a sense, almost like an overcommitted sense of the pastness of the past and the righteousness of need, someone needing to speak not on behalf of the dead and not for the dead, but somehow with the dead.
And, um, you know, that's not going away anytime soon for me. So I think it's those three things, which you could just kind of gloss under the, the, the single word maturity, you know. I mean, we all come by different routes to what we most have to give. And without in any ways estimating myself a finished product nor wanting to be, I would say that's where I am now. Tell us a bit of, I mean, so you grew up in Beddington, Vermont, where your father was teaching at the college, yeah? My first two years oh, I did okay. of so life. I don't remember that very well. I had my first memory in Bennington oh, really? College, which, true to my, my melancholic personality, I actually revisited that spot uh, not long ago, not flying across the country precisely for that reason, but nonetheless taking it in. But no, it was just... Uh, it was just brief. Yeah. Because I was what... So I was wondering if because there's a very particular, there's a, there's a kind of artistic particularity about that college, which I wonder uh, yes. rubbed off on you as a child, but probably not if you were. Well, maybe in a larger sense, because my father taught there for a number of years. I mean, but I always, you know, I associate Bennington with New Yorkers, like my father, and uh, with the young women who went there. And, you know, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and I've always liked that, and I've always even been a little offended when people assume that I'm from the Upper East Side or something like that. And someone even said to me once, knowing that I'm from St. Louis, um, that that's just an accident. You're really a New Yorker. I was like, no, I'm, you know, you've got to be kidding me. Anyway, are we going away from what matters to me? <laughs> no. It sounds like St. Louis matters. Oh, good point. Yeah. yeah. But also, I mean, yeah, that helps, I think, for, helps me understand that you have a deep commitment to talking about American art as American, actually. Yes. Yeah. I think, um, I, I guess um, people have asked me over the years, why don't you study... Um, you know, looking at American art, and I have some of my American art PhD students in this room, so they'll wince and laugh at what I'm about to say, but I've certainly had my elders over the years say, why American art? It's like wringing, uh, you know, it's like wringing water out of a stone. I mean, it's amazing that you can get anything out of this. Why, you know, why not Rembrandt, in effect, you know? And it's a good question. I guess I... I think I've always been in love with American places. They matter to me a lot. And I've always felt that like lonely, homely streets in little towns in America, for example, I can just feel the, um, the combination of elements I've already spoken about. For example, the gravity, the sense of lives lived. And especially at night when the dusk is coming and there's a kind of witching hour and you can depending where you are, see the fireflies and smell the fertilizer. You know, there's just, that's, the, that's a Rembrandt in American terms. Yep. You know, and it's super powerful. And I love looking at things that have frames around them. I obviously believe in American works of art, but I believe in them, I guess, in the way that they are able to be attuned to um, this sense of, specific places in America where something is happening and it is both um, natural and kind of supernatural. And just a very brief example is just before I left Yale in 2012, 
I saw this work by an MFA student there of these kids. It was a video. These kids jumping on a trampoline outside of this little ramshackle house in Loma Linda, California that this student had made. And I just, it was two like nine-year-olds, a boy and a girl, the boy kind of chubby, shirtless, the girl with a blonde hair and a ponytail, just jumping. And I just said to him, that's, I've got to write about this. This is the most, I'm just so moved by this. And, and I did, and I think that's a good example. It's like, uh, certain American works of art. Think of Edward Hopper a bit in this way. But also my friend, the photographer Gregory Crudson, that like, there's a sense like the, the, what's happening here is totally mundane and seems to be singularly unpromising as the stuff of a work of art. Let's say, thinking of Gregory's work, his photography in Western Massachusetts, um, it's like a girl got stood up for the prom, let's say and she's swinging on her childhood swing set in her backyard wearing her prom dress and her mom is looking anxiously out of the, their house in the background and that's it. You know, seems not promising as I say, yet Gregory's able to make it seem as though the gods themselves have noticed this girl's pain and that it's, it's um, there's a way that the cosmos kind of come down to one place on earth. A poet, I'm looking at my friend Nick, Nick Jenkins over there, I mean a poet would know how to render that in words where you take something that is particular and is merely the stuff of what most of the rest of us who are not poets ignore or notice only incidentally and transfigure it so that it takes on this uh, elemental or metaphysical significance. I think you know, and just to round this all the way back to teaching, I think the key moment, let's say in the classroom, you've brought the students all the way to that point. The next and last and hardest thing to do as a teacher, and even after teaching for 20 years, it still takes all my gumption to be able to even try to get this through, is that the moment in the classroom there is not therefore finally, ultimately, no matter what the revelations are, one of alienation for the students, meaning that finally it gets all sussed out and sorted down as poets are brilliant and I'm this person over here who's learning about poetry. Hence, I'm in a passive position uh, and at best I come away as a kind of appreciator of things. Like I say, the, the trick and the hardest thing is to get beyond that so we can say in Emersonian fashion that we all have that soulfulness within us, that the transfigured life that's described in the poem or moment that's described is something we too have felt and what matters to us or what might matter to us is the ability to recognize that and understand that as a part of our lived existence and not treat poetry or painting as an essentially boutique aspect of our experience that we turn on and off depending upon whether we're in a museum or we have a book in front of us. So, you know, I think my father, if he were like the third person here, he would probably cringe a little bit at this because it sounds a little too gospel-y for him, but who cares? I mean, I, I think that's, 
it is in my faith of faith, my kind of St. Louis naivete, uh, you know, I think I totally believe in that. So I have two questions in a way that are related. One is about how, um, because in a way you're bringing the question of experience into this. Yeah. And so how, 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 how do we talk about the ways in which the visual arts especially perhaps, but also poetry and other forms of literature, enable us to kind of reach over a divide and have the experience of, of, of something that is not our experience? Because you're talking about the experience of something that's kind of familiar to you. It's like the home of America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I could speak in the same way about in English, yes. a lot of English art actually. Yes. Um, so how, how do we make the leap, if you like? That's Anna DeVis Smith's phrase. Yeah. How do we make the leap? I think it might be becoming aware, cultivating in oneself um, that which is ceremonial and set apart from the hurly-burly of the rest of our lives. And, you know, appreciating that. Um, so with students with art, I think of, of default would be I feel threatened or spoken down to when I'm in an art museum. And so I'm put off by the stuffiness on the one hand and then also put off by what even a casual observer can note is the utter vulgarity of most museum goers who, are, who have their phones and who are making the person in search of uh, a genuine experience have to engage in a kind of almost like a combat art of creating space and time and reflective possibility. So I think it's first overcoming the idea that an oil painting or any work of art or any person speaking about art is an expert and a kind of elitist and that a work of art in its singularity is is fundamentally a generous phenomenon, just like a professor in her singularity is, should be, could be a generous person rather than an egotist. Um, so that's a first step. And then at Stanford, for example, it's very common for students still to resist and feel that everyone is an artist, as the Silicon Valley saying goes that finally it's a, it's a kind of off-puttingly undemocratic thing to, to judge Rembrandt as better than so-and-so, such and else, and that if my, or in, a, in another version of this, my roommate, you know, took some masking tape and, um, you know, uh, created this work in our room and he loves it and so therefore why, you know, who's to say everything's good, you know, so, this touches on one other thing about teaching, which I think I spoke of with someone just yesterday, apropos of something else, which is just simply this, that I think as a teacher, you have to realize that it's ex to do it the right way is extremely strenuous because you have to disrupt those kind of assumptions. So it is pulling by main force and often alone to get people to see, say, a painting, an oil painting from 400 years ago as not an elitist separate phenomenon that contributes to the inequality and injustice of the world at, at worst and at best 
is merely just so much interesting stuff over there that I'll take a picture of. There's no other way to do it except by hard work. And, uh, you know, I'm actually trying to relax a little. Like, what matters to me most would be to learn how to um, skip stones a little better. So, all of that leads me to ask you about the community. Yeah. Well, I just taught uh, my lecture in this class, one unit class this quarter, called Dangerous Ideas. And I was kind of going back and forth when the syllabus was asked for about whether I should teach like a good old solid, you know, indisputable aspect of art's dangerousness, which is the destruction of images, you know, or whether I should try something a little harder, which would be beauty. And I decided on that day, since I was in a good mood, I would do beauty. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my first observation about that classroom, and if there's anyone in, in here from that classroom, I think you'll know that this comes just as a neutral observation and is met with respect. But um, I had spoken to freshmen, I think, the, the day before. And freshmen sit, when, the, when I come in, when a professor comes in, they sit like this. And I came into this classroom, which I think had many upperclassmen, and um, was kind of like a Hollywood movie version of, uh, there was a lot of this kind of posture like this, with the head tilt like this. And I thought, so speaking of strenuousness, like, okay, like I, you know, you take a moment, you think, okay, and you make sure you had that power bar <laughs> before, and then, you know, you start talking. So I think we went through, I showed one painting by Manet, a very beautiful painting called The Railway, which I had found myself standing in front of the most of all the paintings in the National Gallery of Art while I was in Washington recently, and just, just in raptures by it. And I won't try to summarize the whole 90-minute conversation, but one of the things that certainly came up is that beauty is um, in the eye of the beholder, how can we possibly adjudicate this, uh, et cetera. But another thing is that beauty is extremely dangerous because most people wouldn't want to avow, avow it. It seems a little embarrassing. It seems like the violin music is swelling as the lovers kiss on the screen and that at Stanford, as at many serious places, one does not make a name, one does not gain street cred by going around talking about beauty, especially in rapturous, vulnerable tones. So, very dangerous. So, as in any teaching moment, I felt I needed to own the concept and, you know, certainly speak about what was moving to me about this painting. Some people, one person made a lovely comment about how intimate beauty was, which is, which I thought was great. That it's, I think her example had to do with listening to music. And it's just so personal, so personal. And then, of course, we got into the question of, well, sure, it's all personal, but therefore there are many, as many different beautiful moments as there are people in the classroom. And again, why are we here? Um, how could there ever be something such as a kind of consensus about the beautiful or some community around the beautiful that would be anything other than prescriptive and, um, you know, domineering? Um, 
And then I thought a really great comment was made towards the last, which was, um, well, you're a white guy. And, uh, you know, of course, you can have these rhapsodic moments. Not only is there nothing preventing you from having them, but you're, you've really been encouraged to have this, as Emerson would say, this direct relation to the universe since you were a little toddler, which was news to me, but that's what was said. And, and I said, that's a good point. And the person went on to say also lucidly and, and aptly that many people don't have the luxury of having this original relation to the universe. And, you know, so you're, you know, in effect, where are you coming from to say this? And what I responded simply was to say two things. One is... Um, the people whose right to that beauty, or however you would describe it, has been disrupted, and not just disrupted, but possibly um, obliterated, never had a chance to come into being, let's say, and whose own, if you like, most vivid, passionate thoughts die with them. They're the best people to write about, talk about, lecture about. That's that's that 1940s thing coming back, you know, and I, you know, I don't care who it is, but the people who never got to say anything, you know, that's, uh, that's when you really feel that you're doing something very powerful. So that's one thing I said. A second was, though, that I, I, I disagree with the idea that because, let's say, you're black, that you just, in a structural, societal way, you are, your relation to exactly what I'm talking about is, is disrupted. And furthermore, I, I do not accept that, as a white person, I can be or should be... Uh, I don't know, um, that I should circumscribe what I believe to be genuinely a possibility, an ethical and political possibility for anyone in the room. And nor do I feel a community such as Stanford should be siloed into this kind of multiplicity of different identity viewpoints, each with its own validity. And, 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 and that that siloing constitutes a be-all and end-all of um, intellectual and emotional life here or anywhere that of course constantly needs to be policed according to who says what and who can who can say what uh, you know and I guess when I say what matters to me most just hinged on that would be the simple statement uh, which is that I've come to understand what I do and what I believe in as old, very old-fashioned, but it's not old-fashioned in a, like a neoconservative way of like, hey, old-time humanism, like, it's as good as ever. Drink up and accept what I, you know, distribute to you as the canonical wisdom of the ages. It's not quite that. <laughs> in fact, in any kind of dispute, I would side with the identitarians far more than the truly 
obnoxious expositors of faith, beauty, and truth from on high, which, you know, we're often right to distrust politically. So neither one of those positions, but some place between them, which I would just, in Emersonian and religious ways, think of as um, searching for the soul we all still have, despite the immense discreditation of, or discrediting of that term. And, you know, people, I'm not, I didn't grow up religious, I don't feel especially religious all the time, but I think um, maybe I am, because what I sense, and the reason that, if you like, gives me, affirms me to continue going on in the way I'm going on exactly like I am right now, is that when I look in my students' eyes, when I see their faces, um, that's, you can just see it. There's, there's something there. You could call it the soul. You could call it whatever it is. It's, it's, it's not reducible to just like a kind of discourse of skeptical rationalism, of CVs, accomplishments, careers, achievements, intel, even intelligence. It's something else. And so I, I'm actually um, just deriving a kind of empirical proof from every time I'm in a classroom that the thing I cannot see, cannot, cannot absolutely verify, is, is present. And, and I think if it's, you know, I think, I think I would love it if the humanities could more consistently be about soul making and um, and less about expertise and um, and a kind of defensive fortified um, specialization. Like I, I just don't see the point. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to ask you one last question. Then we'll have about ten minutes for questions from the audience. So I often ask this question. Uh, so some people have heard me ask it before, but not you. Um, so there's a BBC Radio 4 program called Des Allen Discs. Ah. And you have to choose eight records, eight pieces of music to take. We don't have time for eight, so I'm going to ask you for one piece of music that you would take to the desert island. You get the complete works of Shakespeare and the Bible or the Quran. Um, uh, so, but you get another book as well, and you get a luxury. So what is your piece of music, your book, and your luxury? when you go to a desert island, Alex? Well, it's like we need a blackboard here for me <laughs> to keep track of all that. OK. Um, no, no. So I was just listening to this. My wife is an avid listener yes. to this. Yes. And we were listening to one with Ed Sheeran. And he was describing having bought this Harlan Miller painting, which do you know, those, those sound great. Those, it's like penguin. Uh, like a penguin book with a painted very large, large painting with but a very pithy and uniquely darkly English um, uh, title. You know, not not a real, not Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights, but something that really puts an edge on the particular bleak humor of England. But I would say, how about 
um, Rachmaninoff's Concerto Number no. Two in C Minor, which is the, the soundtrack to Brief Encounter. It is my favorite film, actually. Mine too. So oh, there you go. <laughs> 1945, England. Uh, Tearjerker. If, if you haven't seen it, see it. It's a yes, wonderful film. right, right, fantastic. Beautifully symmetrical. I mean, just it's David Lean's first film, I think, and it has a kind of beauty about the cinematography mm -hmm. that is really extraordinary. And did I go to the train station in Carnforth? I did. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Didn't feel a lot, actually, I have to say. But the movie's great. Okay. That's, yes. Um, so, um, a book. Yes. Um, there would be, it would be a novel. Um, it could be many, but I'll say Ulysses by Joyce. And a luxury. I would say it would be um, the sports page from St. Louis so I could follow my hockey team. Yeah. Very good. All right. Terrific. So if you have questions, put your hand up and say who you are. Probably stand up so that we can all hear what you're saying. Yes, stand up and tell us who you are and ask I'm questions. I'm uh, I'm a graduate student here in computer science, and uh. I also happen to grow up in St. Louis. Uh. So I'm actually really curious if you could uh, expand on that a little bit of how growing up in a place that's maybe not the first place people think of in terms of art um, is how that has sort of impacted the lens through which you view art and the things you think are important to you, and also if any of that has changed as you move to New Haven and then to, to sort of the Stanford campus. Yeah, well, that's a really rich and varied question, and, and it would require a kind of, I don't know, a longer time than I have to give, but I love that you asked it. And I would just, I would, yeah, I would, I, yeah, I would say simply that I've, I've always, I think part of my persona, but it is also part of my personality, is that I feel I'm an outsider in academe. Uh, that I wasn't quite cut out to do this. And I think one way I feel, I, I, I own, I avow my St. Louis background is because it's so, you know, I, I love being part of flyover country. I love that I'm not part of the New York art world and never will be. Um, you know, my wife has to tap me on the shoulder and say, honey, you're kind of not an outsider at this point. You can let that go. But I think I can't let it go. I think it's a little, it's very personal. And in ways that are connected to place, um, I think I draw continue, continuing energy from St. Louis as a kind of mythic part of my imagination and my, my being. So that's a short answer, but thank you. Thank you. Um, Who are you? Uh, JV, I'm a fellow at the uh, Distinguished Careers Institute for 2017, DCI for short. A theme, Alex, in your various lectures, which I've enjoyed very much, is your insistence upon bringing into every setting the real. Could you talk about that? Yes, that's a great question. I think. Um, so the, le the lectures, the Mellon lectures at the National Gallery, which are just now going up online as podcasts, um, they were really about the relation of art and life. It's called The Forest, America in the 1830s. 
but the forest is really a sign for, in these lectures, for the flow of life. You know, all the people ordering food at Tresidor right now, let's say, or driving by on El Camino Real, like life, and that we understand that art is what quiets and stills and freezes and defines that flow. And, you know, it's a good thing because it's different from that pure, just pure world of sensation and happenstance. But nonetheless, what if that life or the real kind of makes it into art? And, and what is, you know, I just tend to think that's the most arresting thing. And you could say, well, what, what are the proofs or definitions of that? And of course, that's a, a rich question. But I know when artists are thinking about their work, when, say, Agnes Martin is talking about her grids, or could be anyone, really. could also be a viewer looking at a work. I think our criterion, spoken or unspoken, about what makes something moving is if it has a quality of the real in it. And, you know, it persuades us that even if what it is we're viewing is something we've never seen before. So as Dean Arbus says, it's what I've never seen before that I recognize. You know, we, we instinctively know that this is, uh, this is life. It's not, it's, not a, it's not some kind of artified version of life. Um, poetry in its way of Compress, compressing things down to, you know, bare, trenchant, ecstatic descriptions is a great example where life and art become um, consonant, the same. So um, everything that one learns along the way to getting a PhD and getting tenure tells one not to believe in that. The coin, the coin of the realm at any university as a skepticism about everything I just avowed. But somehow, um, here I am. And, and I, again, like, it's one way of answering your question, JV, to say that, you know, I think this is what audiences and readers would like to feel and know and already believe themselves. Hi, um, Justin, I was in your uh, winter abstract expressionism class, and um, I'm a freshman. I'll be in a bunch of your classes in the future. <laughs> but, um, but you, when you're talking about yourself as a lecturer, you, you talk about being like a medium of almost like sibylline or oracular qualities, but at the same time, you, you talk about not wanting to be a mere functionary. And those ideas kind of seem at first, that's like antithetical. So, yeah. how do you how do you reconcile those two sides of the coin? Is there like some Hegelian synthesis, or is is, is, is it not like that? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good question, Justin. I would just simply say that um, a functionary would be someone who feels like you know they've been handed something that is not theirs, and they're just the courier to make sure that the thing is properly delivered, you know, that they're the FedEx person for the precious contents and they mediate between the sender and the receiver, the students. Whereas a medium, I would just think it's more of a feeling and I'll just, I remember 
a lecture I gave in 2008 on Helen Keller. And um, I just remember giving that lecture. I have goosebumps even right now. Just like when I was, it was in New Haven, I was just walking home, you know, walking back down the street. I just felt like I was standing up straighter, just like the little blades of grass on the lawns were just like, like kind of aware of my presence, you know, like the whole world was just kind of crisped up. So that's how I knew. In other words, like I think anyone in their profession would know this to be the case. You feel, there are times you feel like you're just, you're somehow alienated even from what you have most to give. And there are other times when you feel that you're actually locked into something that is not you. And again, that's not a matter of, well, certain people can do that. I think you've got to believe everyone at all times has that capacity in them. And being able to access it frequently or often, forget about it, being human inevitably means to be diverted from one's best self quite often. But to be utterly alienated from it, as I would consider, you know, to be the case with most people, that's a shame. And that's where someone's got to kind of model that there's another way of living, I think, you know. And everyone deserves to have that feeling I had that day when I walked home. Yes. Um, I'm Michael, and I'm an undergrad here. Uh, I want to ask, uh, how does it feel to teach at Silicon Valley um, and Stanford, a place that's, I think, with its computer science focus and STEM focus, diverges so much from soul-making? Yes. Yes, so that's a great question. And I knew, moving from Yale to here five years ago, that it was going to be humbling. And, and it was. And you know, my class was only one-fourth the size. And uh, that was good for me, though, you know. Um, You know, there's probably nothing worse than a professor who is famous within a two-mile radius and somehow comes to mistake that as fame of a larger sort. So I, I was able to discover quickly that uh, there are limits to my notoriety, and I had to start all over again. Uh, that's one thing. I think it's been depressing at times, for sure. Um, particularly because sometimes I feel like I'm kind of almost doing what I've been talking about today alone. Um, but um, even, the, even the kind of damaging or disappointing things can be seen as signs of um, something's going right, something's going well. Um, you know, I mean, now word, word is going out, and I, my class is bigger now, and I can only keep believing that it will, you know, one can change the culture of this place. And then, as far as Silicon Valley goes, yeah, I think, just very briefly, I would say I'm at a point in my life where I am sensitive to protecting what I do as being not 
instrumentalizable, that is not like turned into the next new thing. You know, so someone's gotta someone's gotta live the life of the tree falling in the forest with no one to hear. Someone has got to like refuse to take advantage of their special gift and just let it be and kind of float out into the world and take away this tripled passion I spoke of at the start of connection to oneself, connection to the art, and connection to the students, and then that's, that's one's reward. But on the other hand, um, yeah, sometimes I wonder if it's not all a little bit pyrrhic and defeatist, and if I haven't somehow in some weird way internalized a sense of like um, failure or uselessness and that that's obviously not not good. The bell rings. The bell does ring. So before we thank Professor Nemirov, uh, I just want to say two things. One is that on your seat you'll find a piece of paper and that asks you if you would like to be on the mailing list for the series and also asks you for suggestions of people to speak in this program. We usually have six a year. They are staff and faculty from the university. Um, next year, it, we have a number of different people speaking lined up already. Liz McGill, who's the dean of the law school. Uh, Steve Denning, who's about to step down as chair of the board. Uh, Dorica Blackman, whom some of you will know as the person who runs uh, first gen and does the diversity office in student affairs. And David Kelly, who uh, set up the D school. So we will have that program sorted out soon. Please look on our website for the details, and we hope to welcome you to What Matters to Me and Why again next year. But for now, I want to thank Alex for his extraordinarily thoughtful conversation, for speaking from the heart, many things that reached my heart and my brain as well. So I'm very grateful to find a fellow traveler. You're not on your own. I think I see mm. lots of people nodding as well as mm. in the room. So thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome.